In this presentation, I wish to deal with the papacy from the time of the Counter-Reformation to the present day. And explicitly, I wish to begin with the date 1798. It was a most important date in the history of the papacy. In the year 1798, we had the armies of Napoleon coming into Italy and into Rome itself and divesting the power, the civil power, from the Pope and taking from him his authority over papal states. It is quite amazing how Bible believers wrote about 1798 in the year itself and in the year following to read biblical account, historical accounts of how they wrote. Bible believers were very conscious of the prophecies of scripture, the prophet Daniel and the wounding of the little horn of Daniel and they had seen precisely that the decree of the emperor Justinian in 538 had been the setting up of the papacy as a civil entity recognized as civilly and as a religious power. And they counted biblically 1,260 years and then writing in 1798 for showing the fulfillment of prophecy. It's amazing how we have such a uh, lack of historical interpretation of biblical prophecy in our own day because of a lack of history and even of how Bible believers wrote at that famous date, 1798. It was 48 years later that the famous Pio Nono, Pius IX, not having territory or civil power, sought still to bring authority and his dominion across Europe in other ways, divested of this civil authority, wounded and not having her civil arm, Rome continued to try and be mighty. And this Pio Nono, Pius IX, set up a whole program to bring in the dogma of papal infallibility. Now he was coming against famous Catholic bishops across the world who said there was no biblical ground to stand on to bring in papal infallibility. Historians like Dollinger who pointed out that many of the popes were heretics declared by councils of the church. How can you declare infallible men who have been denounced as heretics by the same Catholic church? In in spite of all the opposition, in spite of many of the bishops leaving at Vatican Council I, with thunder and lightning being the external part of the, the pageantry outside, the decree was established that the Pope was infallible in all matters of faith and morals. And the papacy continued then with this power of infallibility so-called accepted across the Catholic world in 1917 to establish what has been called the Code of Canon Law. 
Hacheli, who was to become later on Pius XII, was the one who brought this about. Reading from John Cornwall, a Catholic historian, as he writes, at the turn of the century, that's in 1900, Pacelli, later Pius XII, collaborated in redrafting the Church's law in a way to grant future popes unchallenged, unchallenged domination from the Roman center. It was in 1929 that with the help and aid of Mussolini that Pius XI officially made an agreement or concordat with the civil power by which the Vatican was recognized. Not only Vatican Hill and what is now St. Peter's, on the seven hills of Rome, the Lateran being the main cathedral of the Pope, the Vatican Church was given civil power and land. And we have the Vatican State now as a civil entity. It is the smallest nation in the world, but has some of the greatest political power in the world. And that began in 1929 with Mussolini and the famous Lateran Treaty of and now across the world we have, from that time onward, legal agreements being made, concordance with different nations, and we have the instigation of civil power operating from a authority base in Rome, whereby they can reach out civilly and make agreements with nations and bring their authority to bear on famous dictators and the devastation that Roman Catholic Church brought in in the 20th century is basically forgotten. It was very much part of the lives of millions of people in the 20th century. With Adolf Hitler in Germany, the Catholic Adolf Hitler entering into agreement with Pius XII and ruling from 1933 to 1945. Benito Mussolini in Italy from 1922 to 1943. Francisco Franco, one of the most brutal regimes we've ever seen in Spain from 1936 to 1975. It is interesting we see some even photographs of the horrors done by people who were working with the Catholic Church in those horrific years with Franco in Spain. Antonio Salazar, equally devastating in Portugal from 1932 to 1968. Juan Perón in Argentina from 1946 to 1955. And Anton Pavlik in Croatia from 19. 41 to 1945, the most horrendous of all. The fountainhead of the Nazi movement was Roman Catholicism. Not only was Hitler himself Catholic, but the 
Nazi party grew and took power from Bavaria, the Catholic south of Germany. The Nazi party was filled with Catholics, just like Hitler's army was mostly Catholic. At the height of his power, 1942, Hitler ruled the largest Roman Catholic population in the world. Catholics were accustomed to authoritarian dictatorship, and so they bowed the knee to the, the uttermost uh, horrific regime of Hitler willingly. And then we have Pius XI recognizing Hitler as the head of state. At the time, Pacelli, who was later to become Pius XII, was also working because he was papal nuncio to Germany, fluent in German himself, and he was doing all the instigation from inside Germany itself. Later on, he was to become Pope Pius XII, and he had the famous concordat worked out between himself and Hitler, whereby certain rights were given to the Church of Rome in marriages, in schools, and money donated from the treasury to the Vatican, and other things whereby the Catholic Church was recognized as a civil, as a, an entity in civil law in Germany and whereby the Pope kept silent of the atrocities and never denounced them all during the whole course of the war. Pius XII is really one of the most infamous popes in history and so few people know his history. I'd ask that you read John Cornwell's book on the life of Pius XII. He was the one who did the dealings with Hitler and he was the one who was the one to continue working with other regimes. The most deadly of all was Croatia. With Anton Pavlik as head of the new state of Croatia carved out of Yugoslavia, Pavlik's four-year reign with the help of the Catholic prelate Archbishop Alos Stepanak pursued a policy of convert or die with 900,000 Serbs and Jews and others. Of these, we had uh, a number converted, 200,000, and 700,000 chose to die, were tortured and burnt alive, some of them digging their own graves. You can see pictures of this if you make inquiries on the internet, some horrific pictures of what happened in Croatia under the Catholic working together with the civil regime. And it was the only time in papal history that not using the civil power to do their dirty work like they did at the Inquisition, you find priests and monks leading some of the armies as they overrun the Serbs 
in the torture, in commanding people to dig their own graves, and in their deaths. It is priests who are involved with dagger and with hatchet. Eustache are famous or infamous, and many of the officers in the Eustache army under Pavlik were Roman Catholic priests. The horrendous massacre that took place in Croatia is one of the more horrific events. And the West, for the most part, has chosen to ignore it, including the United States of America. The famous author, French author Edward Edmund Paris, has written a full account of these horrific years in his book called Convert or Die. An attempt to set up the Roman Catholic state of Croatia had been successful and the horrific torture and bloodshed of those years has left even some of the years of the Inquisition to look somewhat dwarf in the extravagance of the torture and the pursuit of setting up Roman Catholicism in Croatia. It is really sad that the United States of America and most Western powers failed to recognize the history of Croatia in 1991 where we had again upheaval in that part of the former Yugoslavia. Most of the editorials of the papers here in the States and in England were voicing their support of the Croats, showing how history, even in ignorance of recent history, is devastating. There was one newspaper, the London Telegraph, with the writer Andrew Roberts, who saw how this was going, and he wrote of the present crisis, almost the entire Western media, he said, have chosen to champion the Croats. That is a secular newspaper recognizing that the Western powers, for the most part, supported the Croats and continue to do, our politicians and others, whereby they're totally ignorant of recent history and of the part that Roman Catholicism played in the whole episodes. The atrocities have stopped somewhat in Croatia. The still militant bands, Medjugorje, the famous apparition site, and there are difference in pockets of danger, but for the most part the atrocities have stopped. But the Vatican continued to control governments, social, economic and political life with the intrigue of the Jesuits and others, and the destinies of people across the globe. Their tactics have changed and it's best spelled out by the Catholics themselves. We read a very interesting book written by Jean-Guy Villancourt, Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of Montreal. The book is called Papal Power, a Study of Vatican Control over Lay Catholic Elites. After perfunctory remarks about the Inquisition burning of heretics and the, the Crusaders' holy wars, there were quotation. They were but two extreme forms of hierarchical coercion during the late feudal period. Villancourt says the following. After 1789, 
when the Roman Church was no longer able to use its repressive powers, the Church became more and more interested in using the legal and ideological power of the state and laws enshrined in concordance through education of youth in schools and universities, through welfare services, hospitals and charitable organizations. In fact, the church increasingly became the ideological apparatus fulfilling for a state and for the ruling class the functions necessary for their growth and reproduction. Inside the church, the bishops and priests became functionaries of the central organization. A weakened laity itself turned into a pawn in the papacy's fanatic efforts to retain its position of absolute power in Europe and especially Italy. End of quotation. This really gives you a critique of what the papacy was doing. It was now through civil law and agreements with governments across the world and the intrigue of being able to come into this civil authority of a nation by legal agreements with that nation is the way the Vatican has worked in the 20th century and coming into the 21st century. These concordats are a civil agreement made in civil law between the Vatican, called the Holy See, and a sovereign nation. A concordat recognizes usually the following. Catholic doctrine, establishing of Roman Catholic education, laws regarding the Catholic owning of property, the appointing of bishops, and a civil recognition for the Catholic laws of marriages and annulments. Prior to 1989, the Holy See signed international agreements primarily in Europe and in the Latin American nations. How these agreements change nations is just a fact of history. Germany, as I already mentioned with the agreement of Hitler and Pius XII. And the nations of Latin America, those nations who had concordats with the Vatican, are the nations where the Roman Church is accepted as a religious power and those who are in ecumenism with her and others are classified as sects. This is civilly by the civil power. And the devastation politically and economically in these nations has been really a, an eye-opener which so few people are aware of. From 1950 to 1999, there were 128 such concordats between the Vatican and various sovereign nations across the world. At the present day, the Vatican maintains relationships on the civil level with 174 Nations, whereby she sends her papal nuncios, who are ambassadors, and receives them from those nations as ambassadors to her civil state. And this has been a way in which the Vatican has control. It is quite amazing the power that the Roman Catholic Church has by these civil agreements 
to get her recognized in so many domains of ordinary daily life as part of the civil law of that nation. In her own nation, it was in 1984 that President Reagan put through a plan that Congress passed with the one or two people voting against it. But it was passed by Congress that the Vatican was to have civil relationships with the United States of America. And it is really sad to see the implementation of many Roman Catholic things from that date forward. It is amazing that if the day comes when a full concordat is worked out between the Vatican and the United States of America, that very few Bible believers would even raise their eyebrows. They have no idea what a concordat is, and they have no idea that down the line it could mean that their Bible-believing church could be classified as a sect and civilly could come under rules by which it could be closed down. They have no idea that these concordats established Catholic dogma, Catholic marriages, Catholic positions regarding property, and many things to do with education, and whereby Christian education and Christian schools could become civilly illegal. It's frightening to see some of these things across Europe. I talked to some believers in Slovakia when I was there in the year 2000, and they were frightened because the Vatican had just finished a concordat with Slovakia, and they knew the implications. They were aware of history and very well aware of what the word concordat means and what it can spell for Bible believers when the Vatican enters into a civil concordat with a sovereign nation. The Vatican has devastated Europe in the 20th century, and it is most interesting that one of the first things that the present Pope, Ratzinger Benedict XVI, has done on May the 20th, 2005, he called out for more nations to sign concordats with the Vatican, making a special appeal to China, Saudi Arabia, and Vietnam, who have not done so. Islamic nations have signed concordats with the exception of some nations, but the Vatican has been highly successful in their diplomacy with even Islamic nations. While they have devastated Europe in the countries I already mentioned, they have also devastated much of the developing world in the 20th century. They have entered into agreements with many nations and they have uh, brought in their theology and particularly their social mandates. The Catholic Church utterly changed its policy at Vatican Council II. It didn't change any dogma. They changed to the vernacular language, but they didn't change any dogma. But they did change their strategy. Instead of Bible-believing churches being called heretics, they were now called separated brethren. And instead of Islam Buddhism and Hinduism 
being called pagan religions, they were now accepted. Quoting from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 841, quotation, the Church's relationship with the Muslims, the plan of salvation also includes those who acknowledge the Creator in the first place, among whom are the Muslims, who profess to hold the faith of Abraham together with us. They adore the one merciful God, mankind's judge on the last day, end of quotation. The Vatican officially recognizes the Muslims. In the same document of Vatican II called Nostra Aetate, paragraph 2, they go on to recognize Hinduism and the Buddhists. About Hinduism, they say, they seek release from trials of present-day life by ascetical practices, profound meditation and recourse to God in confidence and love. About Buddhism, they say, it testifies to the essential inadequacy of this changing world. It proposes a way of life by which man can, with confidence and trust, attain a state of perfect liberation and reach supreme illumination either through their own efforts or the aid of divine help. End of quotation. The Vatican recognizing Buddhism as a way to God and also Hinduism. That is the ecumenical relationship that they have with these pagan religions that Christians should be very aware of as they seek to have relationships with them who they already have relationship with. It is not only that the Catholic Church sets out to win by believing churches and the pagans and the Muslims, but they give their rules of dialogue. From their council document number 42 in ecumenism, they say dialogue is not an end in itself, nor is it just an academic discussion. Rather, ecumenical dialogue serves to transform modes of thought, behavior, and the daily life of those non-Catholic communities in its aim. In this way, its aim at preparing a way for their unity of faith in the bosom of a church one and visible. To bring all churches into the one church into the bosom of the one church that they are. All those Bible-believing churches should take wear of their strategy that they print. You can find it even on internet web pages. Pope Pius XII was infamous, but the man who succeeded him in our own day, Pope John Paul II, has become famous, so much so that the president with his father former President Bush and President Clinton kneel at his coffin and show respect to him. And so did leaders across the world and many other so-called churches and evangelicals show respect to this man. This man has been known for his instigation and revision of what was done in 1917 by bringing in a revised code of canon law 
1983 that was much more rigid than anything that went before. Since the famous days of Hildebrand, we never had somebody who was so careful to instigate laws by which the Roman Church could have absolute power if the opportunity ever comes for her to implement these laws. This canon law, published in 1983, is unbelievable if you read some of the laws. For example, 1311, quotation, the church has an innate and proper right to coerce offending members of the Christian faithful by means of papal sanctions. Canon law is very careful to differentiate between the faithful, which are the Catholics, and the Christian faithful, which are outside the Catholic Church. Their right to coerce offending members of the Christian faithful. They show, these laws of the last Pope show an absolute dictatorship and totalitarianism that has never before been seen in print. 1371 of the same canon law, which is present-day canon law of the Catholic Church, reads as the following. The following are to be punished with a just penalty. A person who teaches a doctrine condemned by the Roman pontiff. Canon 1312 declares specific penalties that are to be carried out. Paragraph 2. The law can be established for other expiatory penalties which deprive a believer of some spiritual or temporal good and are consistent with the supernatural end of the church. End of quotation. Frightening decrees made in very recent times by a most famous pope that has been lauded by many evangelicals and no idea what he has written in his papal law. Vatican Council II was famous not only for its decrees recognizing the Muslims and the Buddhists and the Hindus, but for one document in particular, its Gaudium et Spes. It is remarkable that the present Pope Ratzinger has lauded in a recent statement this document and called again to mind that people across the world would be aware of what was said in Gaudium et Spes, giving his approval of what is written. The Catholic Church in this document continues the teaching of a most famous Catholic theologian, Thomas Aquinas. And I'd like to read from what they have continued and put into print in present-day Roman Catholicism. Quoting from Aquinas, in cases of need, all things are common property, so that there would seem to be no sin in taking another's property, for need has made it common. It is lawful for a man to succor his own need by means of another's property, by taking it either openly or secretly. Nor is this, properly speaking, theft or robbery. It is not theft to take secretly another's property 
in a case of extreme need, because that which he takes for the support of his life becomes his own property by reason of that need. In case of a like need, a man may also take secretly another's property in order to succor his neighbor in need. The Robin Hood principle, you can also steal from the rich to give to the poor if there is extreme need. This is Thomas Aquinas in the official teaching of Aquinas of Summa Theologica Secundi Secundi, article number seven. Now, if that was just in the past, but the Vatican II has taken his teaching, quoted from him and give footnotes to him, as they say, similar words. In the 20th century, coming into the 21st century, I want you to listen to official Catholic teaching. Quotation. Whatever forms of property may be, as adapted to the legitimate institutions of peoples, according to diverse and changeable circumstances, attention must always be paid to the universal, this universal destination of earthly goods. In using them, therefore, man should regard the external things that he legitimately possesses, not only as his own, but also as common, in the sense that they should be able to profit not only him, but also others. On the other hand, the right of having a share of earthly goods sufficient for oneself and one's family belongs to everyone. The fathers and doctors of the church held this opinion, teaching that men are obliged to come to the relief of the poor, not merely out of their superfluous goods. If one is in extreme necessity, he has a right to procure for himself what he needs out of the riches of others. The Vatican officially declaring that in cases of need, a man has a right to take what he needs from the property of others. Now, if that remained just the teaching in Vatican II documents, we would be horrified just to see it printed alone and on the present-day Vatican webpage, but it has been implemented. The Catholic Conference of Medellin, Medellin in South America in 1968 announced that there was extreme inequality of social classes and unjust power and exploitation. And they set about implementing this teaching of the Vatican in what is called liberation theology. I saw some of this in Trinidad in 1969-1970 and I was actually part of the movement which came to the uprising in 69 into 70 which was overcome actually by the government but I saw some of it. It was only child's play to what the priests did, the Cardinale brothers and others in Nicaragua bringing in the Sandinistas because of the theology of Vatican Council II that property was common and that in need you can take from the property of others. 
making this your dogma in social practice. We had the same in Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala and Costa Rica. And it has devastated these nations. It has not been successful for the most part. The poor are poorer and the economics are worse in these nations as these, this movement has failed. But the ignorance of people have of what has happened in recent history is, is unbelievable because it is very well documented. I urge you, we have some copies with us, but you can get it on our internet webpage, to read John Robbins' book where he documents all this in far more detail than I have time for in his book called Ecclesiastical Megalomania, where he goes into the exact words of the Catholic Church, not only in this document, but in many other documents, and shows how it has devastated nations of the world. He is fully academic, footnoted, and would to God that some of our senators and congressmen would read that book and see the economic design and the social design of the Vatican Church that is having an effect even in our Senate and in our Congress. It is quite unbelievable what has happened in the South American nations and not only in South American nations, in Africa. There's one nation in particular that stands out, but it's only one nation, and that is Zimbabwe and Mugabe. They have continually taken the land from the rich so-called give it to the poor, and they continue to do so up to the present day. The Catholic Church where I was in Trinidad supported Mugabe regime. And it is other countries of the world because it is the philosophy of the Catholic Church that Mugabe is putting into operation. It is important then to read and understand these things because the Vatican continues to have power civilly and in economic sphere and so few people will see it. We have to study and study recent history if we are to be true Bible believers standing strong in the truth of Christ Jesus. At the same time, and I think this must be said, across Europe and across the world, we have had true Bible believers. I thank God that personally I spent one year in China and after some time got to know the underground church and the faith of the Chinese. After the Reformation, the second greatest revival that has ever taken place on the earth is a revival in China and it continues. The believers out there will tell you, and it's documented that in 1948-49, when communists took over, there were 845,000 believers in the whole nation. And now it's between 60 and 80 million. They can't take a census, but that's what they estimate. And for the most part, they are true believers. They're separatists against those in apostasy who align themselves with the government. They are true to the gospel and true to Christ Jesus under extreme forms of torture and persecution. I would love if you could get your hands on the writings and the cassette tapes of Jonathan Chow, who has spoken about this recent revival in her own time. 
Because if China is ever free, we would pray to God that these believers could come into the Western world where Christendom needs them and the true gospel and what they have stood for these many years of torture and ridicule. And then right across the world we've had true churches that have stood strong in the faith. My own Ireland, the Free Presbyterians, and they have come here to the United States of America. Many of the Reformed Baptist churches have stood strong to the gospel and have contended for the faith and have separated themselves from apostasy. In the United States of America, the independent Baptist churches, for the most part, nearly to a man, have stood strong in the gospel and to separatist principles. Right across this nation, we have these churches. We have the separatist section of the evangelical Methodist churches that have stood strong in the biblical truth. We have had some of the Presbyterian churches stand strong, whereby we've had huge difficulties in very recent times, but some of them have stood strong. And we have still churches here and there, community Bible churches, First Baptist churches, and that are still standing strong in face of great apostasy all around. We still have true Bible believers. This is a tremendous encouragement to us that in the midst of horrendous apostasy, perhaps the greatest apostasy that we have ever seen, that we have Bible believing believers standing strong. And such organizations to mention but one as the ACCC, the American Council of Christian Churches and what they represent. We praise God that in the midst of the horrors of Roman Catholicism and of their allies, it is really sad because people are ignorant of history when Evangelicals and Catholics together comes out and we have Jesuits who are behind the writing and in the signatories nobody notices because they do not know what Jesuits have stood for. This is present day history. We have to make a stand for the truth of the gospel because Christ Jesus proclaimed the gospel. This is the work of God that you believe on him whom he has sent. He gave distinctive rules regarding economics and to be accountable in different parts where he taught good stewardship. In the pages of the scriptures that have come under his authority by the Holy Spirit, we have the differentiation of powers like we have in the United States Constitution. We have clearly in the Bible social conditions mentioned and economic conditions which we must be aware of as Roman Catholicism comes in in these very lines. I would recommend John Eidmo's book on uh, God and government. No, that's Gary Lamar, who I'd equally recommend. Eidmo's book on God and Caesar, I would recommend, because we need to be informed of what is biblically correct in social and economic terms if we are to stand and apply history. I praise God for the churches that we have. We pray for real revival in face of some of the more horrendous things ever seen in the 20th and 21st century 
and the horrendous apostasy that is around us. We trust the sovereign God that he would bring in again a mighty work to stand strong in the faith that is the faith of Christ given unto us. Praise God and Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.